Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 257. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show, episode 257. We've got Linda Kaplan-Thaler on the show today. Great guest, great book that she's, she's written, a handful of books, but the book that we talk primarily on, the reason why I wanted her on the show, it's a book that's been out for a little while, but it's called Grit to Great. And I absolutely love this book, and you need to read it if you haven't read it. It needs to be a go-to for you if you're interested in leadership, entrepreneurship, never giving up. And that is so much about leadership, isn't it? Never giving up, the tenacity, the persistence. That's the big lesson I've had from doing this show for three years. It always goes back to never giving up, tenacity, persistence. I love what Ralph Waldo Emerson said about persistence and tenacity. And he says, the characteristic of a genuine hero is persistency. All men have wandering impulses, fits and starts of generosity. But when you have resolved to be great, abide by yourself. And do not weakly try to reconcile yourself with the world. The heroic cannot be the common, nor the common the heroic. And I think it's so true if we want to lead this life of significance, because the whole reason why we study leadership or why we try to become better leaders, it's so that we can lead more significant lives. It impacts everything that we do. It's central to everything that we do. And it all goes back to persistence, tenacity. It's less about talent. Talent's a given. you got to be good at something. But it's the tenacity, the persistence, the grit. It's what's going to carry you through the day. Gosh, I'm so happy you're tuning in to Dose of Leadership. If you're finding some value here, please take the time to leave a rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher. The show continues to grow by leaps and bounds. It's because of your support. If you're brand new to the show, I appreciate you tuning in to Dose of Leadership. And again, subscribe to it onto your smart device, on your phone, on your iPhone, your Android phone, and leave that rating review at iTunes and Stitcher. It helps so much for the visibility of the show. And if you are finding some value, you can go to Patreon and set up a Patreon account. It's a great way you can lend financial support to this show. I don't do advertising. If you're so inclined and you feel like you're getting some value in the show, feel free to donate to the show. And you can do that easily at patreon.com slash Dose of Leadership, or you can go to my website at doseofleadership.com and click on the Support Us on Patreon banner in the left sidebar or in the menu item, and it's pretty easy. You can donate as much or as little as you want, and, uh, and again, your support would be greatly appreciated. Again, thank you so much. And last plug before we start the show, if you're needing a speaker, needing a coach, one-on-one coach, a group coach, seminars, speaking, um, you can find out more at my personal website, richardryerson.com, and you can learn more about my masterminds, my coaching, and my speaking services, all centered around leadership, personal growth, and searching for significance. Oh, you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Linda Kaplan-Thaler. She really is an, an advertising genius. She's in the Advertising Hall of Fame. She's a creator of many of um, 
some iconic campaigns that you're going to be very familiar with. Most of all, the Aflac Duck, that was her idea, right? Toys R Us Kid, that's her Kodak Moments. She's a was the CEO of the Kaplan Thaler Group, which quickly became one of America's fastest growing ad agencies. She's the former chairman of of Publix Kaplan Thaler New York and the co-author of several national bestsellers, including Bang, Getting Your Message Heard in a Noisy World, The Power of Nice, The Power of Small, and her most recent book, and the book we're going to talk about primarily on this show, Grit to Great, on how perseverance and passion can take you from ordinary to extraordinary. And man, I got to tell you, I love, love, love this book, Grit to Great. And I love this conversation. You know, the book is, again, about all that grit, perseverance, perspiration, determination, you know, how to the, the stick to itiveness that we all need. You know, we look at people, you know, kind of climbing the corporate ladder or achieving some level of success that we think that, man, there's no way we could do it. They're so talented, but it's not about that. Most people get ahead, even the gifted ones, because they've worked hard. They put in thousands of hours of practice, sweat equity, and they made their own luck. And I think that's so important as to, to realize and embrace that truth as you go on your leadership journey, that it is all about grit and tenacity. And uh, we hit that hard in this conversation, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's Linda Kaplan-Thaler, the author of Grit to Grit. Well, Linda, I'm so excited to have you on Dose of Leadership. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I love, 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 can I say I love Grit to Great? It's one of my favorite go-to books of the past couple of months. Can I just say that on the outset? Is that okay? Oh, you know, you don't have to twist my arm on that one. <laughs> actually, actually, we were one of the uh, top uh, business books for 2015, and Ariana's on Ariana Huffington's Christmas list of books to buy. And so we we've been thrilled. Robin Cobell and I wrote the book together. We've been thrilled with the response so far, and thank you for reading it. Yeah, it's just such a you know a lot of what we talk about, or I've talked about on the show for the last three years, and certainly. In my entrepreneurial and leadership journey, I talk about talent a lot. And part of the thing that resonated with me the most in that book was the, the part talking about talent. And I say that a lot of times in presentations and in coaching clients is like, look, talent is a given, but it's never enough. And it's, you know, you, you, you got to be talented at something, but we put so much emphasis and stock on talent in this society. But in reality, it's so much more than that. It's just the perseverance, it's the grit, to, to the tenacity, right? I mean, that yeah, that's why that's why Robin and I wrote this book. I mean, we started an ad agency from scratch, and within a couple of years, the Kaplan Thaler Group was literally the fastest growing agency in the United States. And honestly, we were bright, but we're not that bright, and we right. were talented, but certainly not uber talented. And we started looking around at people who had really made it, uh, you know, really extraordinary people. You know, Walt Disney was apparently fired from his first job because yeah. his boss said he lacked imagination. And Colin Powell was a C-minus student. Right. And Steven Spielberg couldn't get into film school. And Michael Jordan was cut from his high school varsity basketball. These people were not born with incredible anything. Right. And we looked at it and realized they none of them had that it factor. They weren't brilliant and they weren't didn't have virtuoso talent. They had what we call the grit factor. Guts, resilience, initiative, and tenacity, and that's what got them 
where they were. You know, I just remember growing up, and you got an example in the book, or there, you referenced some study they did with, about gifted students. And I remember I was in the gifted class, and I just remember the the emphasis from the parents and the way the school treated them. And and it's not like I did. I mean, I had a great childhood. I did okay. I was an average student and everything else. But that kind of that and many other examples as you go through is like, well, I'll never be, I'll never, I never can, or I'm not as good at, you know what I mean? And you just, you start to believe it. And it just kind of breeds this kind of mediocrity, the stagnation that, that you see all around us. And it's like, if we, we don't seem to celebrate the, um, I guess in certain circles we certainly do, but I'm just talking in general, we don't seem to celebrate the up and coming clawing through the mud you know, grit story as well as we do is like, Oh my God, this person's just naturally gifted and talented and look how great they are. And, but even then the people, the ice grader, the, the Michael Phelps, I mean, I guess you hear some of those stories, but it's just, we, we think that, well, they're there because God gives them some sort of talent. Exactly. You know, we did so much research for this book. I mean, three years worth of research and, actually people who are born prodigies, a disproportionate amount of them become actually very, you know, failures, unsuccessful. Yeah, right. 2% of them actually do anything even closely related to achieving success. Yet three quarters of the people who do become successful, not only had this grit factor, but actually have pretty challenging childhoods. They were average or below average students. They, they had, they faced poverty, they faced dyslexia. And it, it's amazing how many of them, we interview Wendy Thomas, who's one of our right. clients at the agency, is Wendy's, you know, the uh, hamburger chain. Her dad, Dave Thomas, who named the restaurant after her, mm-hmm. he had um, the most abysmal childhood. His, he had an adoptive mother who died when she was six months old. He had an abusive, very difficult childhood. His feet were permanently deformed from wearing right. shoes that didn't fit. And you know, he had only had one person in his life, his adoptive grandmother, Minnie, who said, hard work is good for the soul. Plus, if you're working hard, you don't have time to feel sorry for yourself. And she said, I don't care what you do in life. Just do it with quality and never cut corners, which, by the way, is the reason that the Wendy's hamburgers are square. Because yeah. he honoring Grandma Minnie and I not cutting it. any corners. I love that story. And I love the story in the book of how you guys... Uh, got the Wendy's account. I mean, my stomach was in knots reading it and just kind of <laughs> putting myself in that situation. But it's a great story because it reminds us that, you know, on the outset, you would think, oh my God, I'm, we're competing against all these, you know, large agencies. Here we are, you know, these two women, the smaller agency, we don't have a chance, but you just never believe that. And you went out and you just, even up to the last minute, rehearsing things and you know, we got an hour left. Let's do one more dress rehearsal, exactly. whatever. You know? I mean, that's just amazing. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, I've always taken the attitude, it's great to think like an underdog. And we would tell mm-hmm. our clients at Procter & Gamble or Wendy's or any of them, I don't care if you're on top, think think like an underdog, because if you're standing still, you're going under, because the world is moving so quickly. With Wendy's, we were up against like 50 contenders, oh, yeah. and we were so tiny. And even the clients just, you know, they threw us a bone. They never thought we would get it. And because we had that attitude, we weren't prepared. We were like overprepared. We actually worked in the restaurants for a while, you know, know, learning how to put burgers together. We did sleepovers where the whole agency would just sleep 
over. We, we did, we filmed ourselves just sleeping over and working day and night. We made up fake newspaper ads to show that they could finally beat Burger King, which they finally did after we won the account. Mm -hmm. We got them to the number two chain and they finally awarded us the count. They said, you know, your work was great, but at the end of the day, we just knew that nobody would work harder than you in our business. And we tell that story because, you know, people just keep thinking that it's all about this brilliant genius or this incredible talent. Michael Bloomberg, our esteemed ex-mayor of New York, is very fond of saying, I will never be the smartest person in the room. He was also a C-minus student like Colin Powell. He said, but I outwork everybody. It isn't about being prepared. We talk in the book. It's about being over-prepared. If you spend 30 minutes a day more on whatever that presentation is or whatever that paper is, you will have put in an extra 130 to 60 hours a year over what the other person is doing. Right. And that's bound to make you a winner. Yeah, it, it, you have no choice. The universe has to move when, when it sees you putting that kind of effort in, right? And I think that I don't know. You, you get we see such a negative rap on uh, overachievement, or how do I even put this? You, you see the kid is like, well, they don't have a life. I got to do everything, you know. But just doing that extra thirty minutes, or having the discipline habits, it's the discipline consistency. I guess is the point that I wanted to highlight is that doing the ordinary things just a little bit better than everybody else is really the difference maker. I think it is and you know we we actually interviewed Nick Walenda who mm -hmm. if you recall yeah. part of the Walenda family they they're aerialists and tightrope workers walkers and he walked across the grand canyon we even have a chapter called Lose the Safety Net, uh, of yeah. course, without uh, a safety net. We interviewed him, not while he was on the high wire, of course, after he got off. Yeah. And he, and I said, you know, people must think you're crazy. You've got a wife. You've got three kids. You took your life in your hands. He said it was pretty much, like, you know, pretty much a cakewalk because what people don't realize is that I practiced this for five years, eight to 10 hours a day in my backyard right. under wind currents, sand currents. There was nothing that was happening in the Grand Canyon that I hadn't already done double or triple or quadruple in my backyard. He said, fear is not something you run away from. Fear is something you embrace. Fear tells you you haven't practiced enough. You haven't worked hard enough. I love that. And he yeah. also, his great quote from his great-grandfather said, always remember life is on the high wire. Everything else is just watching. And I love that. Life love yeah. is supposed to feel scary. That's when you're really living. That's when you're really taking a chance and doing something special with your life. I love that analogy. And I think in, I would say the last eight to 10 years, really coming to appreciate what, how good of a motivator or at least a barometer fear can be. And um, it's like you get to the point where you actually embrace it because it really pretty much tells you what you should be doing, I think. You know, that's how I look at it. It's a barometer on probably what I should be working on because if it's not, then I'm not challenging. I'm not pushing myself. I'm not living life to what my what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm shaming the angels, like I, I like to say it, you know, yeah, because I'm you like – it, it is so true. We, we looked at an interview with us former marathon runner who used to um, do volunteer work searching for landmines in third world countries in, in Africa and oh, lost, literally lost an arm and a leg. 
uh, to an exploding landmine. And everybody thought he was finished. I mean, this was a guy who was an incredible athlete. He got the prosthetic limbs. He went back. He, he now does these incredible, like, 100-mile marathons. And the interview that we saw with him was so incredible because he said, what you learn when you do this is that as soon as you get to that point where you say, I just can't go any further, I just can't do any more, he said, you find out that there's a new plateau mm-hmm. and you reach it. And, you know, they recently did this incredible study with two groups of people. And one group, they were told, you have an hour to come up with 10 ideas for this product. Another group, they said, you have an hour to come up with 10 ideas. You know, they each came up with 10 ideas. The first group, they said, well, do you want to stay a little longer and come up with some more ideas? No, 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 no. I'm I'm really exhausted. I I won't come up with anything better. The second group had to stay for an hour longer, forced to stay for it came up with 15 more brilliant ideas, better than the original 10. And so it's this example of, you know, every time we look at our research, pushing that, you know, and it isn't about, like you said, it isn't about pushing, you know, like, oh my goodness, I have to give up my life. It's just that extra hour, it's that extra 30 minutes, and you'd be amazed how how much you can do. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's it's that... I don't know a better word for it, but discipline, consistency, or, or developing those kind of habits of doing that extra you know, push up when, you know, just doing one more, you know, like, oh, I'm doing yeah. it, you do one, whatever, my, you know. My, my Hamid Ali has a, my Hamid Ali has a great quote. Someone asked him, how many sit-ups when he was training, how many sit-ups a day do you do? And he said, I don't know. And the reporter said, wait a second, you don't count how many sit-ups you do? He said, oh, I only start counting when it starts to hurt. <laughs> he said, because I haven't really done anything until that. And I, I love oh, that I love metaphor, that. right? Yeah. Until it starts to hurt, until you start to feel some of that pain, that pain is when you're actually accomplishing something, right? I love that. that, that that's a great way to look at it because it's almost like, ah, I don't know. I think we, we go through life thinking that it is about arriving somewhere, but I, I, I've totally resigned that fact that it, you never fully arrive and it's like it's like the mountain that you never reach a peak and like you stop at a base camp every now and then and look at your progress and we put our arms on each other and drink a glass of wine and say look how far we've come but and recharge but the next day we're going right. at it again right i mean it, 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 exactly i mean it's 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 amazing that uh you know it, it really is so much more about the journey than anything else pablo casals who's arguably one of the best cellists that's ever lived, and certainly the best cellist of the 20th century, was still practicing four hours a day when he was well into his 90s. Right. And he was interviewed, and somebody said to him, why are you, you're 93 years old, why are you practicing so many hours a day still? And he looked up, and in all, without being pretentious or you know, not joking around, he said, because I'm beginning to see some improvement. <laughs> because he understood that the journey is never over and it's actually the journey that that really is the most fun you know we have a chapter in our book that's called ditch the dream yeah when you live in this world where you're constantly imagining the rosy future uh it gets you nowhere uh Estee Lauder once said I never once dreamt of success I just work for it uh and there's a saying uh if old saying if you 
want your dreams to become a reality, so wake up already. And, <laughs> right. and it's when you're in the present, and you know this, you know, when you're in the present and not thinking about this gauzy future where everything's perfect, but solving the problems of the day, you know, those little minutiae, you know, I need to get more bond paper, I maybe need to take another marketing course, I need to make five cold calls a day. Doing it bit by bit is is really what's going to, as someone once said, you know, it's like walking up Everest with a toothpick. You're <laughs> yeah. eventually going to get there. Right. It's going to take a friggin' long time, but you know what? The fastest growing segment of the population are centenarians or people in the hundreds. And I love to tell millennials, like, what's your rush? You think you have to get there by the time you're 30? Forget about it. You're going to probably have three or four or five careers. So what? Yeah. If it takes you 10 or 15 years, Beverly Sills... Amazing opera singer. I love this quote. She says, there are no shortcuts to anywhere worth going. Isn't that the truth? Oh, yeah. It's so true. And I, 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 for me, I think it's, it's some people, when I said it's, it's that never ending kind of journey, never arrive. Some people initially, I've had a couple people where I've, where I've had some breakthrough coaching moments where we've talked about that and they, they seem almost, initially depressed but for me it was like relief when i finally looked at life that way it was like a tremendous relief does that make sense because i don't i have to stop stop chasing that elusive mythical whatever i know it makes total sense and you know for me i uh i grew a company from scratch um you know we were the agency that created that aflac duck yeah right that and you know that quacking yes Yeah. Now we made we made Aflac so popular now that when ducks see other ducks, they immediately think of supplemental insurance. So, <laughs> you know, we've arrived and we created, you know, that woman in the shower for herbal essences. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. And back in the day I wrote the Toys R Us song. Yep. I'm a composer right. and we you know, and all of those wonderful milestones. And I remember my boss, James Patterson, who I write about in the book, now a very famous author, he said to me, Are you ever gonna stop and just enjoy this moment? And I said, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm too fixated on what it is I want to do next because that's where the fun is. And, you know, I, I, I formally left the agency business. I built an agency that merged and grew to be a multi-billion dollar company with hundreds of employees. And I finally, I took all the awards and I put them on videotape so that my grandchildren might see them one day. And I, and I tossed them in the garbage because I said that part of my life is is done. Wow. I want to go back to you know theater. I used to be uh, a performer. I want to go back to public speaking and media, um, which I do now, um, motivational and teaching talks around the country and the world, um, espousing the things I believe in, like Grit to Great or one of my former books that I wrote with Robin Koval, um, uh, the power of nice mm-hmm. things that I believe in right. that I think can be of some benefit to people. And when I, especially when I speak at colleges and they say, well, what's your happiest day? And I look at them and the light in their eyes and I go, my happiest day is right now talking to all of you because maybe it will impact how you think about your future. And it really is true. I mean, my happiest moment is talking to you right now. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what the future is going to bring because I'm too busy concentrating on the present and having a lot of fun. It is amazing. I just finished up a, right before your, this conversation. We had another one we were talking about, uh, with the gentleman I was talking with. We were talking about that self-awareness. And, and um, I distinctly remember that, that whenever I chose to – it sounds crazy, but when I chose to 
opt in to the awareness around me. And I'm not a metaphysical guy. I mean, I'm a spiritual guy, but I don't, does that make sense? I can't even articulate it right now. But at the moment I realized self-awareness that I'm just opting into what is happening right now, things dramatically changed for me, dramatically. It, it's exactly right because we spend, and you know, in that wonderful book, Power of Now, uh, we spend no time living in the present. Mm-hmm. All our time is spent regretting or bemoaning the past and idealizing a future and and not enjoying it. When you just sit and say, wow, I'm just enjoying this moment now. Let me just lap it up. Mm-hmm. Because that, honestly, that's all there is. You know, when I worked on Kodak, we helped create, and you, I'm sure you've heard the term Kodak moments. Yep. Because we understood, you know, in branding, you understand it's not about what you buy, but what you buy into and what that brand does and the role it plays in your life. And once we realize that Kodak was not just about beautiful, colorful film competing with price point for Fuji, whoever the competitor was, but actually preserving the now, preserving what was happening at that moment, knowing that it's never going to exist again, but someday you can look back on it. And that's what it's all about is just preserving the now as much as you can with the hopes one day that you look back on it and go, you know what? I'm really glad. I'm really glad I enjoyed that moment, even if it was something that was hard fought, even if it was something that was negative, that feeling of, but I got through it. I did it. You know, when either any mm-hmm. one of my kids struggle through something, I always say, but how did you feel afterwards? You know, mom, I felt great. Yeah. I felt great. That's why I think there's so much value into being in that um, being in that mud moment, I call them mud moments, and I have another. Show. I love, I love that. I, I have, love that. I have another show called Out of the Mud where we talk about that. But it, 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 it the, you know, when you get out of it, because the, it's so powerful. Because, it, and I think it's important to understand that you do have the choice, even when you're in that mud moment, you have the choice to do something. You may not like your choices, but you have the power to choose something. And when you eventually do get out of the mud, you're different. You know, when you wash it off, I mean, it's different. You're, you feel different. You are different. You're transformed. And, and even if the mud stays in your cuticles and in the crevices of your hands, I mean, it reminds you of where you came from. I think that, I don't know, I just love that metaphor because it's so, there's, there's great value. It's a blessing. Well, you know, and even if, if, if in the Bible even talks about that, you know, thank, be thankful for this, you know, moment that you're in because when you come out, you're different and you're better for it. I don't know. I I I I, to- I totally totally agree. You know, years ago I had uh, cancer, and uh, my mother had gone through breast cancer, and thankfully is 92 and she's doing fine. <laughs> and I went through at a very early age. I was 39. I hadn't had children yet. I thought my life is over. Right. And my mother, who's the strongest human being I know, my mother said to me. I wish I could go through this for you, but I can't. You're going to go through this alone, and you're going to and you're going to get through to the other side. And when you do, you are going to feel so powerful. Everything and everything else in life is going to be gravy. And you know, I did go through it, and I went on to have two children. Against all odds, they told me I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to, and I did. Uh, my son is 24 getting his PhD at Harvard. My daughter's composer like my husband, uh, now, now in college herself. And two miracles that never were supposed to happen. 
But I started my own agency soon afterwards. And when anything bad would happen with the agency, you know, we'd lost a client. My mother would say to me, she would say to me, well, do you have cancer again? And I said, no. And she said, well, what are you worried about? And I would laugh. And I tell people, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But when you go through a life and death struggle, it is somewhat of a gift. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the gift is you can help. And I've helped so, unfortunately, uh, so many women have gone through it and I've been able to help them through it. But it is a gift that God gives you and says to you, you know what, you're going to get through this. And boy, are you going to appreciate life on the other side. Yeah. I, I once wrote a poem saying it's like we're, in this, we're dancing in this ballroom and we have no awareness that we're dancing. We're just gliding through life and then suddenly you hit an abyss. In my case, it was cancer. And you almost are about to fall. And you suddenly realize that you're not going to fall. Well, now when you dance, the music is sweeter. Your partner holds you closer. And everything in that dance is just more beautiful. And you enjoy it so much more. Yeah. I love that. It's all about the perspective. Yep. It's all about the perspective. And I think that, I don't know, it's making that shift and that transition. And I mean... And that's why leadership is so important to me because it gets to the, the root element of all this. It's so easy to understand, but it takes authenticity, transparency, and courage to really lead that fulfilling life and the willingness to, to I don't know, even when you're in that mud moment to just understand that this too shall pass. I, I don't know how, I mean, we're all in it at some point. We're all going to be in it again. But just having that awareness of that it will pass and that you will be transform the other end is 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 what keeps me going anyway you know a very wise man once said to me when i was going through a very very difficult time in my life he there was a painting in his office and he said i want you to walk up to this painting and i want you to put your nose on it he said what do you see and i said i don't know i just see a bunch of some colored dots he said yeah i know that's all you see now i want you to walk back and now what do you see i see wow i see a beautiful stream and rocks and trees He said, well, that's how I see your life. Mm -hmm. He said, but you don't see it that way now because you're in that, you call it the mud moment, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what it was for me. He said, you see that moment, he said, but I see all the dips and turns. And you know, you can't really have a joyous moment until you've experienced a bad moment. Otherwise you have no perspective. And by the way, you know, in the Talmud, you know, I'm, I'm of Jewish persuasion and there is nothing about happiness. Um, Really, you are put on this earth for one reason, is to make it a better place. Uh, So when you die, you've left it a better place than the way that you found it. Right. And it's all about, and by the way, you know, the Bible, none of the Bibles, we consulted all sorts of religious leaders, talks about the word retirement. About and and you know it. I I looked it up, and Robert and I researched. It was an invented term during the industrial age, simply because machines were doing so much work. They Mm -hmm. had to get older people out of the workplace to make room for younger people to have jobs. So they invented this term, and when people turned sixty or sixty-five, they gave them a watch, and that was it. And the research is actually showing that when people retire and do nothing, they're incredibly depressed because. The Bible teaches us that we were meant to keep working and to keep helping others until we could no longer do it. And so 
even if you leave a specific job, you know, when you're 65, isn't it kind of the joy you feel of creating some other job that can maybe help other people? I mean, happiness is not the absence of problems. Yeah. And we talk to a neurologist about this. Happiness is how you feel when you solve problems. Right. Right? Yep. Oh, and when that. you and when we use our grit for good, which is how we close the book, that's when we feel our happiest. Well, I think that's what our obligation is. I mean, to your point, I really do think that is what we are charged to do with the limited time that we're here. Because, you know, if there's something that's making your stomach and knots or your throat tight, God, you better be listening to that to see what it is because something profound is going to happen on the other side of it. And I, I just think we're, we're, that's what we're called to do. I mean, otherwise, yeah, and that, I think you brought up the Industrial Revolution, you know, that whole Frederick Winslow Taylor scientific management theory mindset. Just, I mean, we're still seeing the ramifications of it, you know, to the point yeah. to where we think and we have to go to college to. I mean, college is great and it's good, but we, we're kind of programmed thinking that you cannot have a successful life unless you follow these set of rules and, and that you have a certain amount of money by the time you're 65. And it's just, I think that's just a sad way yeah. to look at life. It, you know, it's, in, it's so interesting. I mean, a lot of the people we hire in our company never went to college. The CEO of the company I just left never went to college, <laughs> you know, brilliant people. And it wasn't right for them. And Google doesn't even look to see if you went to college or where you went to college. They're just taking it off. You, you just, they ask you to take it off the resume because it's not really accounting for who you really are or what you've accomplished in life. Yeah. And and I, I tell people, and I speak to colleges around the country, the first thing I say to them is, by the way, you're not that special. Yeah, I love that. You know, they, it's, you know it was during this whole self-esteem movement in the last 20 years, we were told to tell our kids that they were brilliant and unique and wonderful, and each was born incredibly incredibly special and genius. And, <laughs> and it, it just created a whole generation that didn't understand for the large part that it really was about your work ethic. It was about your stamina and your perseverance and the passion you felt for something. And, and I, and I hate it because, you know, they, they, a lot of these people come into jobs and they, they think, you know, that I went to an Ivy league school, so I shouldn't be doing this job. It's too lowly of me. And I go, you know what, look at the, look at the um, schools that the CEOs of the top Fortune 100 companies went to, and most of them you never heard of. Right. Never heard of. Right. They weren't Ivy League schools. Mm-hmm. You're so true. I mean, well, and Jim Collins highlights it in good, in good to great, which not to be confused with grit to great, by the way, but it's, <laughs> it, but he talks about that. But those, those level five leaders, the ones that are really, truly special, that leave lasting legacies, that make the, make the campsite better than they found it, you know, they, they are the ones that you never hear about. And it's because they, they've got this kind of weird combination, or not weird, rare combination of high-level intensity, uh, and the intensity is geared towards making the place better. Um, but they're humble at the same time, right? It's like this humility, exactly. and this, this intensity of will, and combined with this humility. And all the great leaders that we're talking about that, we want, that I want to emulate or that I look up to share those. You know, they're, they're, Like I said, they're making the, the world or the campsite better than they found it. But... Um, yeah, a lot of them are, you don't know who they are. Yeah, I was exactly. just reading in the paper, or there was actually a documentary about this world-class pianist who just did not like audiences. He got an- terrible anxieties. He did like one concert, he got rave reviews, and now he's in his 80s, he's a piano teacher, and 
he lives his very sedentary life and he said, I'm just so happy. I'm just so happy not performing and just playing piano for myself and teaching others. And he's a completely unknown person. Right. And he's so incredibly at peace with himself, right? Um, you, you sometimes wish, I wish more of those people really did want to become political leaders. I know it. You know, <laughs> what a world we'd have, right? I know. We just, we're just so surrounded by it. Is this the best we can do, really? I mean, come on. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, don't get yeah. me started. I know, don't get me started. We don't want to turn to political debate. But you know what? I mean, just everywhere you look, the things that are celebrated, at least that, not so much celebrated, at least we're bombarded with, when you really strip it away, is mediocre at best. Yeah. And dysfunctional too. But I mean, it's just, you know what I mean? It's like the, the real heroes that are making the, that are changing, like that, the example you gave me with the piano teacher. I mean, look at the, I mean, I bet you when he dies, there will be so many people at his funeral with all the oh, people my- that he, you know what I mean? The impact and the legacy that he's laying exactly. and no one even knows about him. You know, we interviewed this woman in the book who's completely unknown. She's watching TV one day. Her husband happened to be from Tanzania, and she notices that all these people, these children in Tanzania are starving. They're malnourished. And she turns to her husband, and and this is a woman who had five kids and no business degree, nothing. And she said, we have to help. We have to help these children. It's like, what? And she looked up, and she found there was this thing called Plumpy Nut, which is sort of like a peanut peanut butter-based product, doesn't need refrigeration. She said, we got to figure out how to open up a plumpy nut factory in Tanzania. Hmm. What? <laughs> and it took her years, years. Yeah. And she's raising the five kids and they raised money and they had to go through all of these international rules and regulations to start this. Anyway, four years later, she opens up this factory in Tanzania. They opened up three more. They fed, now they have these factories around the world. They have fed over, I don't know, five million children are alive wow. today Gosh. because of these plumpy nut this product that they put on bread and she's a nobody you never heard of her and she doesn't care and that's why we wanted to interview her talk about somebody with grit and she said no 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 applause nothing i just had to do something and i tell people whenever i speak never think for a minute you don't have the power to change one life two lives a million lives i don't care where you went to school i don't care where your what your education is you've got the grit, you can make it happen. It's humanity's great equalizer. Anybody, and we, we have lots of grit tips in the book and grit builders, anybody can develop it, whether you're eight or 88. Just make a decision what you want to do with it and go for it. I love that. I love it. It's so true. And just the fact that, you know, she was sitting on the couch and made that decision. I'm suspending, yeah. I'm suspending the belief in how this is going to get done. I just know this has to get done somehow. I just, And I'm the one that's going to do it because no one else will do it. Right. And then, you know, screw all those resistance and the other part of the people, you know, the negative self-talk. And I'm sure she had it at some point and said, oh, what are you doing? You're crazy. You know, even the closest ones, the loved one, honey, this is insane. You got five kids. We can't, you know, and it's just you got to just keep working through. That's what the grit comes in. You know, there's, this is a story we talk about one of our other books, Power of Small, the power of making small talk. And we actually did a little film on this, The Power of Small Talk. It's on, it's on YouTube. We found this woman in Tacoma, Washington. She's a barista, a woman who was in her mid-50s. And every day, this other woman, you didn't even know her name, would come in and have a cup, you know, have, order a cup of coffee. But she did something different than all the other people online. She would actually talk to the barista 
ask her how her day was, how she was feeling. She liked to make, make small talk. She liked to make the barista feel important and not just some commoditized person who, you know, I have to wait online for. And one day the woman walks in and the barista notices that she doesn't look good and she looks very upset. What's the matter? She asks her. Well, I have kidney failure. I just found out that nobody in my family is a blood match and I'm going on dialysis soon. They don't really give me much time to live. And she reached over. She took her hand and she said, I'm going to get tested for you. Well, there's got to be a being, right? A greater right. being on earth mm-hmm. or above earth. Mm-hmm. She was a perfect match. Wow. She didn't know the woman's name, so she had to wait till she saw her, you know, a couple of weeks later. She donated her kidney. Oh, my God. They'd become best friends. Her husband said, I don't mind you doing things for people, but please don't give away any more body parts. You know, <laughs> right. you have that one kidney. Anyway, they not only became best friends, and we did a little film about them, but and they both have grandchildren now. She's the woman who had got the kidney and whose life was saved said, you've given me a gift that is unbelievable. But the barista said to her, no, I, I got the greater gift because you made me feel like somebody when I didn't feel that important in my oh, life. Wow. And now I feel like I'm a hundred feet tall. So, you know, when you give, you know, that of course is the greatest gift. And by the way, neurologist, um, has told us that when you give to somebody, the same part of your brain lights up as when you're given money or when you give somebody a kiss. Wow. We are hardwired to want to help each other. That's why we still exist as, as a human species. And I love these. I love those examples. I love these stories. I mean, this whole reason why I do this show. I love um, hearing that. I love exactly everything that you do. I'm curious, though. Let me go back. How you know, Growing up, you grew up in New York City when you were a kid in the 50s? I grew up in the Bronx, in the yeah, Bronx. A, a place of, you know, no Ivy League. Yeah. <laughs> no Ivy League scholars there, you know. <laughs> what was that like? What, what were your parents like? What was the childhood like? What was it like growing up um, in the Bronx in the 50s and the 60s? Well, I won't I, – I could easily get back to talking like I talked in the Bronx. <laughs> but I think it would – you think your readers, your listeners would be very <laughs> upset. Uh Actually, I had a, a kind of a boring childhood, but a wonderful childhood, right? That's the best kind. Yeah. Middle-class parents, just my mother was a homemaker. My father and my mother was a terrific writer, too. My father worked tirelessly. You know, it's so interesting. I, I tell this story uh, when I do my talks uh, about my dad. When he, he was one of the early inventors of the parts of the TV set, he invented part of the wiring, and he was an electrical engineer. And I talk in the book about not retiring, but rewiring. <laughs> and when he was in his 90s, him and my mom you know, moved to an uh, independent living facility. And he asked people, what can I do to make your life better? Do you want me to give you lectures on technology? And they said, you know, Marvin, we're in our wheelchairs. We're in our 90s. We don't laugh enough. We want to laugh more. So every month, he would, he would just gather. He knew that they weren't on the internet. You know, they mm-hmm. weren't internet savvy, he would gather things from the internet, YouTube clips of Saturday Night Live and Carol Burnett and, you know, Woody Allen, and he'd put them together as clips and they would just laugh in their wheelchairs for an hour. And it was just called the Laugh with Marvin Workshops. (laughs) 
And up until the time that he passed away in September at 95 years of age, do you know a week before he passed away, he said to me, but I still have clips that I want to show. Oh, man. And I want to gather those clips together and have a memorial service next year and just gather the residents together and said, these were the clips that he never got to show you. He was still trying to make people's lives better. And I think that's why he lived as long as he did. He just loved to bring joy into people's lives, no matter how hard it and how hard he worked at it. I love that story. I guess I would ask, you know, I always ask whose shoulders are you standing on, but I just, I can just see that you're standing on your mother and your father's shoulders. Yeah, yeah. that's the truth. Anybody else? Uh, I think it mostly came from my parents and the wonderful role models I've met, you know, along the way, too numerous to, to imagine. I did get to interview Warren Buffett once for a radio campaign and I was told I only had 10 minutes with him, and and he is such an unpretentious, kind man, as you know. You've seen him in interviews. Mm -hmm. And I know I had 10 minutes, but I also did my reading. I'm a gritty person, and I looked up and saw that Cherry Coke is his favorite product. Mm -hmm. That's why he loves that drink, mainly because, I don't know, maybe because he's made billions of dollars in Coca-Cola stock. (laughs) And before we started the interview, I said, Mr. Buffett, I just want to give you a gift. And I gave him this $1 can of Cherry Coke to this man who's worth billions. And he turned to me and he said, young lady, and of course I was flattered that he called me young. <laughs> and uh, he said, in all my years being interviewed, no one has ever given me my my favorite beverage. So what I'm going to do is cancel all my meetings this morning and give you an interview that'll last as long as you need me. Oh my God, that's great. And I had a two-hour interview with oh Warren Buffett. Oh my God, that's awesome. I, 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 I call it, you know... Um, Sweetening the deal. We talk about that in the power and I sweetening the deal. It just cost me a dollar. That is awesome. That is an awesome story. Yeah, he's I a great role that. model for yeah. me. And everybody. Well gosh, I love your I love I could talk to you for hours. I just there's so many things I want I want to learn from you. I want to talk to you about. You gotta come back on the show. There's so many other things. Oh, there. I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank you. How can people get in touch with you, interact with you, engage with you? Well, uh, they can follow me at Twitter at at Linda Thaler2, L-I-N-D-A-T-H-A-L-E-R, the number two. Uh, Facebook, um, Linda K. Uh, dot Thaler, T-H-A-L-E-R. Uh, and I am at uh, Linda, my email address, Linda at ThalerProductions.com. Uh, the book is anywhere. It's audio book, and uh, thankfully, I'm not doing it. It's an actress doing it. <laughs> uh, Robin Koval and I, of course, wrote the book. It's uh, in its fourth printing. It's a bestseller, and anybody that's interested in buying and get it anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, iBooks, and, and really, if there's anyone out there that would like to have me come speak, I speak at uh, corporations, colleges, and anywhere you think you might think this message would be appropriate. I'd, I'd love to come out and pay a visit. And uh, I just want to thank everybody for listening. And thank you for such an extraordinary interview, Richard. Really wonderful. Well, it's my pleasure. And like I said, I was looking forward to this one. And I read Grit to Great and I came across, I, I was telling you in the pre-recording, we were talking about how I came across your name in a John Maxwell book, his latest book. And I was like, and I just started digging. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I not know about all this great material that you're putting out there in Grit to Great? Is It's just... It's a go-to for me, and and there's 
a handful of books that I'm gonna I consider go tos, and and I'm gonna consider Grit to Great one of those. And uh, I just love that book, and I'm anxious to dive into the rest of your work. And I'm so honored and and happy to have met you. I look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you so much, Richard. Have a great day, everybody listening. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership eBook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.